Good morning, church. Oh, I guess I already was up here once, but uh, it's good to see you again. You know, this is an exciting time, and it's a different uh, moment. It's a different Sunday for us today. This is, as we've already mentioned, the final uh, Sunday of the church calendar. And uh, you may be here today wondering, what are you talking about regarding the church calendar? Perhaps you grew up in a church or in a tradition where it wasn't recognized much um, it's likely that you recognized at least Christmas and Easter, uh, but perhaps that was it. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition that recognized the church calendar for all its facets and all its different bells and whistles, and, um, and, and you know a lot about what I'm referring to. Um, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, what I would like to do today, it's a little bit of a different sermon. I'm not going to be preaching from one specific text. We normally, in our preaching, we will focus on one particular text. Often we will work our way through a book of the Bible and preach uh, sequentially each week. But this week's going to be a little bit different. Um, this is going to be more of a topical uh, sermon, and I want to do this particularly to help prepare us as we enter the Advent season. So, uh, in the church calendar, next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent, which is like the beginning, the new year of the church calendar. And so, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about that today, so that if you, as you join in with our church body, and as we uh, go th- progress throughout the year. I want you to be able to be aware of why we do what we do and why it's important to us. Why is it that we um, we we uh, enter into this church calendar idea in our worship? I brought with me today uh, this mug right here. It doesn't have any coffee in it, in case you thought I needed both coffee and water at the same time. Um, That's it, not a bad idea. I'm not opposed to the idea. But I brought this uh, specifically, this uh, mug here says, Carlin and Ricky, October 18th, 2008. So we just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary back in October. Um, and this particular mug, we're going to have a, a wedding ceremony celebration of vows today. So it got me all thinking about my wedding. It got me all thinking about uh, when I got married and um, excited uh, for our brother Calvin and Melania as they share their vows this morning with each other and with us and before God. Um, but this was uh, um, a favor that we gave to all the guests at our wedding. So um, if uh, we had guests at the wedding, they received a coffee mug, um, and we were very much into coffee, so it was kind of the theme of the day, and we wanted people to take this home with them. Um, it, I think in every single year that we've celebrated our anniversary, I have received a text from at least one person saying, I'm drinking out of your mug today with your names, with the date on it. I'm remembering you today. It's very special to us. We keep it in here uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our house. I think this year I was the one who drank out of this mug on that particular day. Um, it's a great way of remembering uh, that moment in time. I have other things from my wedding ceremony that I carried with me today. One is this wedding ring. Uh, I have a ring on my finger that uh, reminds me and it, and, it, and it signifies my covenant with my wife and the covenant that I made before God and the witnesses that were there. Uh, one of the things that we do uh, as a couple is we, every year for our anniversary, and 
Um, at, the, at the beginning, when we first started this tradition, it seemed like it made sense and it was a good idea. And now that we're 15 years in, it's a little, uh, it's a little much, but we're, we're holding to it. Um, our first, our, our wedding night, we stayed in a bed and breakfast in Michigan. And when it came around to our first anniversary, we thought, what are we going to do to celebrate and commemorate our wedding, our marriage, our first anniversary? And we decided, let's stay in another bed and breakfast. And so we went, we were in South Carolina at the time. We found this really beautiful one in Georgia. So we went down to Georgia and stayed in this really nice bed and breakfast. And we thought, let's do this every year. And not just do a different bed and breakfast every year. Let's do a different bed and breakfast in a different state. So by the time we reach our 50 years of, of, of marriage, we'll have visited all 50 states. Uh, and, and when you live on the East Coast, like South Carolina, or we later moved to Baltimore, you can travel four hours and be in five, six, seven different states. Easy. When you move to California, you travel four hours in any direction, and you're still in California. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so it gets very expensive. It gets very time-consuming. And so, so far, we've done it. We have 15 states that we've checked off the list. Um, we even had the crazy idea of, like, when we get to 50, we'll go to Hawaii and celebrate big. And I'm thinking, okay, when I, I'll be 80, I don't know that I'll be celebrating and enjoying Hawaii the way that I ought to be. So we did it at 10 instead, and we had a great time. Sasha and An came with us. That was a great time. We got a bed and breakfast, and they watched the kids, or the kid, and we had, we had a good time. It was, it was fun. These are all things that we have done for us. Oh, I'm losing this. These are all things that we have done to re- help remember this significant moment in our lives, this significant piece of our lives, who we are, and uh, what, we've commi- what we've covenanted to. It's a way that we've helped other people also remember, not that they care to remember the date and time, but there are people that have actually reached out to us and said that they remember as well. There are significant things that we have in our lives that are important to remember. And so it's important that we schedule things, memorials, if you will, in order to be able to remember how significant they are. Now, you might say, do you forget that easily? Do you forget that you were married? Do you forget the date that you were married? Do you forget? Well, I mean, guys are kind of known for forgetting those things, for one. But no, I don't personally forget those things often. But the reality is, is that the idea of remembering is a little bit more than just like a cognitive way of remembering things. It's a little bit more than just saying, yeah, I know the date, I know what happened, I, rem- I have those memories, I can tell you about them. It's a little bit more than that. So, so every year when we go to our bed and breakfast to celebrate our anniversary, our wedding anniversary, we are reimagining, reliving, re-entering into the story of that day, of that moment when we became husband and wife. And so each anniversary, we are finding ways to not just remember, oh yeah, we did get married, it was on that day, it was at this time, but we are finding ways to go back and relive out that particular story. The same is true, and it ought to be true, with the church. The same, you know, there's a story, uh, there's, a, there's a story of a man and a, a woman who were married for 45 years, and after 45 years, she decided that she uh, wanted to divorce him. And they said, why, why do you want to divorce him? You've been married for so long. And, and she said, I have, 
been married to this man for 45 years, and he's never once told me that he loves me. And, and, and uh, the mediator said, is that true? He said, well, I told you when we got married that I loved you, and that if, if anything changed, I'd let you know. The, the, the reality is, is that just because you, we are told something doesn't necessarily mean that we always feel it or that we always understand it. That they're always engaged in that particular thing. Just because you know about God, just because you can tell the story of the gospel, just because you understand the truths of scripture doesn't mean that we feel it. It doesn't mean that it inspires us and it doesn't mean that it engages us. So how do we as a church, do this. Instead of just hearing things being taught to us and saying, yeah, I know that, I know that, I can understand theology a little bit more, I can understand these verses a little bit better. How do we enter into these truths in such a way that it affects us to our core? Because that's important. How do we engage in a way that we remember, that we don't forget? You know, God's people had a habit of forgetting. They had a habit of not remembering. Matter of fact, you can go and throughout the scripture, hundred, almost 170 times, the Bible records when God tells his people, remember this. Don't forget this. You did this because you forgot. You did this because you did not remember. Matter of fact, Exodus 13.3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt from the house of slavery, for by the powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Again in Deuteronomy, you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, with an outstretched hand. Deuteronomy 8, and you shall remember all the way the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness for these 40 years. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, you shall not eat leavened bread. Seven days you shall... Uh, eat with unleavened bread, the bread of the affliction, that, uh, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste in order that you may remember. Judges, remember judges? They always turned and did what they was right in their own eyes. The sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of the enemies on every side. Nehemiah, they refused to listen. They did not remember the wondrous deeds the Lord had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed leaders to return into their slavery in Egypt. But you are God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And even as we get into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he writes, Therefore, remember that you were formerly, that you were, uh, you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those that called them themselves of the circumcision which has been done by human hands. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, were one, you who were once far away have been brought near with the blood of Christ. Peter writes in his second epistle, so I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you, that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside and our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We have a holy amnesia problem. <laughs> We need to be reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. We need to be reminded of who we are. 
We need to be reminded of whose we are. We need to be reminded of what we have been saved for and what, where we have come from. Because we often forget. We can understand theology. We can understand the truths and the commands of Scripture. But we need to be embedded. We need to have our minds embedded in the story of redemption. There's a uh, story that's told in a book called Worship Like Jesus by a lady named Cherry Constant. She tells of uh, a, a church similar to the situation here where um, a church was preparing to enter into the new, the new year of the calendar. And I didn't prepare this sermon based on this story, but I was excited to see this story. Uh, they were preparing this particular Sunday as they, prepare, as they went into Advent to talk about the calendar year, the story of redemption. Because that's what the, cal- the church calendar is. We begin with the, the hope and the longing for the coming of Christ. And then, and, and, and then he comes and we celebrate his coming at Christmas time. And then Epiphany, all the way to the Lent period and all the way to Easter, we celebrate the life of Christ on the earth. We, we reflect on his life and the work that he did on the earth and the places where God the Father spoke to him and said, this is my son, listen to him. This is the one I'm in who, uh, whom I am well pleased. We recognize all these things uh, these these moments in Christ's life, and then we get to eat uh, the Good Friday and Easter, and and then we get uh, we go through and celebrate His death and His resurrection, and then we go all the way to Pentecost when the church was born, and the disciples were gathered together, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then and then uh, and then we celebrate the the season of uh, Pentecost. That's a, a quick overview of of the church calendar, but here. Um, this church was doing the same thing. And and, and she writes this, Sunday our six-year-old, this is from somebody that was writing to her, Sunday our 60-year-old grandson, William, was sitting with my wife Katie and me. Usually William is in the children's church, but today he chose to sit in the big church with us. He had declared a few months ago, I have decided that I'm not going to believe in anything unless I can see it. Our conversation went like this. So William said, is God here? And he said, Yes, God is everywhere. William said, I can't see him. And then uh, the father said, usually we feel God. We don't see God. We can't see God the way that we see each other. William said, I've decided that I won't believe in anything unless I can see it. I heard resolve in his grandson's young voice. Even at such a young age, I realized that something or someone had intentionally influenced his thinking in that direction. During the worship service, William was sitting next to his grandfather and he noticed him reading the words that were on the screen and, and, and singing along with the songs. He was gauging throughout the service as the worshipers told the whole story of God. On the short drive home, William said, when I get home, I need a marker and a new piece of paper. At home, Katie gave him the marker and he disappeared and they started their lunch preparation. Soon William came out with the paper. On it, he had written, I, big heart, God. This didn't come out of a Sunday school or children's church, at least not yes, uh, in that service. This came to him as the church told the dramatic story of God's love in Christ. This was a wonderful new statement of belief. And then... 
the writer Cherry goes on to say, I would add that it wasn't only William's belief that was formed. His affections were amended. His love for God was ignited. His church's liturgy was loaded with the ultimate story about who we are and what we're for. As a result, William's participation in worship bent the needle of his young heart, pointing him to the majestic or the magnetic north of Christ. He worshiped the context of the story of God and was moved from skepticism to love. Stories are powerful things. They're very powerful things. A good story comprises uh, ongoing narratives that weave together like a masterpiece. So whether it's a novel or a nursery rhyme, intriguing characters, creating plots, subplots as the drama unfolds. Eventually, the sequence of all the events are connected in a way that forms the texture of the great storyline. Once connected, the story can be told because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so this is why we have to understand not just the truths and not just the theology and not what just Scripture says, but we need to understand everything within the context of the greater story of redemption. Um, theologians, um, philosophers like to call it the meta-narrative, the bigger narrative. There's a lot of different narratives. We, the, the, the word narrative has entered into our vocabulary on a lot of different places. We talk about the narrative that is being spun through politics, or we talk about this person is believing this narrative or that narrative. We use that idea a lot. The idea of narrative is something that is significant to the way that we believe and the way that we feel about the world that we live in. If you watch a particular news source, they have a particular narrative that makes you feel a particular way. If you watch the Hallmark Channel around the Christmas holidays, you have a particular feeling about the way that you understand and believe the holidays to be. It might only be one plot that's told 200, 300 times, but it's still a narrative that is... Okay, I'm losing this all together, I think. All right. Um, I think it broke. There we go. Um, I think it's a narrative that tells us how we ought to feel around the Christmas holidays. And so the, the narrative that we buy into, the stories that we listen to that we understand those particular stories inform our belief and our affections. Let me give you an example of a narrative and a, uh, uh, the meta-narrative. The story that we all know is the story of David and Goliath. Now, when I was a kid, I used to hear stories like the story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel 17, where David was used as an example of a model that we could emulate. Just like he faced giants in his life, and he chose five smooth stones to fight off his giants, even we can find stones to fight off the giants in our life. That's a great story. I can do that same sort of uh, analysis with Hansel and Gretel or Jack and the Beanstalk. But does it point us to... Jesus? Does it point us to something greater than that? The, the reality is, is that we oftentimes enjoy this narrative of this little boy coming in with no armor 
and saving the day because of this great giant and all he used was stones. We enjoy the, the fairy taleism of that particular story and we miss the whole big picture. And the whole big picture is right there in the text. If you want to look there, 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel says, seven, this, uh, 17, David enters out. He says, I can't wear this armor. I can't wear these particular things. But I'm going to go out there because I've uh, had success with killing a, a bear and a lion. And I, I believe that God is going to give um, this, this uh, Philistine into my hand. 1 Samuel 17, verse 40 says, Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, which he had, and his sling was in his hand. He approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with a healthy, he was glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword, or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And then David approached him, and we all know the story. He hit him with a rock, and he fell down and chopped off his head and killed him. But David tells us what's going on here. He tells us that this is a story of proclamation that God, the God who is represented by these people, is a God over all the earth. He is a God that, he said, everyone in this place is going to know when I'm done that there is a God in heaven and that this God saves. That's the story that we need to understand, not the story of David being somebody who can find stones to kill his giants in his life. We need to understand that the story, the narrative that we that we carry with us has this overarching message that God is a God over all things and he is a God who saves. And so as we enter into the stories of our life, and each one of us carry our own stories. Each one of us are living out and believing in the narrative of our own lives. We are all understanding about who, who we are and what we've been through. And we, we live according to that belief, the, the way it makes us feel. Some of us have had horrible lives. Maybe things that we've grown up into, we've been abused, we've been hurt, and we just believe that, that the world is a horrible place. We might be some, some people, we might be somebody who believes that all the world exists for me. And I deserve everything. I deserve all the goodness and all the happiness and all the... Well, all of these narratives, whatever it is the narrative that you believe, it has to be understood within the context of the greater 
meta-narrative that is provided to us through the story of redemption. Another writer, Robert Weber, well, let me, let me say this first. So in order for us to be, to correct the way that we think and to understand our narrative in light of the bigger narrative, we have to do more than just being told Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. For some, that's all that the Holy Spirit needs for us to truly believe and understand. But the reality is, is like I had already said, we are forgetful people. We, we fail to remember. And even if we can tell the story, even if we can say the true things that are true, do we feel it? Do we believe it? I want to look at another passage here real quick before we jump into that. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is a passage where God has, uh, Moses has given the people the commands of God, the things that they are to listen to and obey. And he conclude, or and, and, and he gets this very, very important text that is understood to be one of the most significant texts for the Jewish people. And, and rightly so, it is a text that matters a lot to us. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. He had just given them these commands. Deuteronomy, all the way up to this point, he's given them these commands. And we know by Jesus' words later in the New Testament, when he was asked, what's the most important command? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your mind. He goes on to say, the second command is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And all the commands that have been given can be summed up or can be umbrellaed under those two commands. So everything that we are expected to do and be can be summed up in this idea of loving God and loving people. That's where the commands, that's why the commands exist. Ultimately, the ultimate purpose, the most important thing that we need to have in our lives is to love God. And we love him because of what he has done for us. So he loved, we love him because he loved us first. And so we are called to love God. And what does, uh, what does Deuteronomy share with us how they are to go about remembering these things? Well, if you, I just listed it off. He says, you're to do this, you're to do this, you're to do this, you're to do this. Put them, put them on your clothes. Put them on your foreheads. Put them on your, the posts of your house. Put them on uh, every, all over the place so that you do not forget, so that you remember. And, and, and he goes on to even say this. He says, um, in, uh, later on in, in Deuteronomy 6, he says in verse 20, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of all these stipulations and decrees and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord did signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and to give us 
the land he promised an oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord so that we may always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey the law before the Lord our God, he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. He basically, they said, when your kids come to you and say, Dad, why, why do I have to obey all these things? Why do I have to pay attention to these rules and these stipulations? He says, you were rescued. That's why. You were redeemed. You were brought out. You were given new life. All the benefits of life that we have promised to us, that are given to us, are given to us because we have a Savior. We have a God who rescued us. This is why we do it, is because we have been given a new life, a new way to live. So in order for this belief and these affections, in order for love to be created in our heart, we need to be reminded of the stories of Jesus. We need to enter into the stories of Jesus. Robert Weber says this, we are the people of the Christ event. The church now lives on the earth between the historic saving event of the death and resurrection and the future coming of Christ when the transformation of the world will be complete. The church has been entrusted with the meaning of all time. The world does not know the meaning of its own history, but the church does. Through the discipline of the Christian year, the church proclaims the meaning of time and the history of the world. This is, we are the ones who know the truth about time and history from the beginning to the end. We are the ones that inform what Christmas is all about. We are the ones who inform what Easter is all about. Why? Because it exists, because it Includes or it was started by the recognition, the observation, the, the observance of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. You know, one of the things that we understand that we see here is that um, is that all of this includes time. What is a calendar? It's time. What happened in the beginning? One of the first things that God created or established was time said, let there be light, and there was light. In the evening, in the morning, oh, was the first day, so there's time. He established the sun and the moon to create time. A- after, seven day, after six days of working, he created the seventh, the seventh day was where he, he uh, established the Sabbath, a seven-day week. So already he is establishing the way that we measure the existence of time that we live in. And then we have the years. You can look at the moon and you can look, or you have months. You can look at the moon. I mean, even, even peoples have called it, you know, so many moons ago. So there's reference to the way that he ordained this cosmic clock to keep time in a way in which we also are able to measure the things in our lives. And the amount of time that the sun uh, uh, revolves and goes around the earth, or goes around, I mean, the earth revolves, I'm getting getting way off, the the earth goes around the sun. All of these things are this, like I said, a cosmic clock that help us understand the way that God intended for us to understand in no time. And we are the masters of that time. We are to understand and know how that time is to operate. 
So it helps us. And matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you will see that the Old Testament calendar, the Jewish calendar, was built around the, the saving events of God. There were certain festivals and feasts and, and sacrifices that had to be made at different times throughout the year so that they would understand and know the important things that they shouldn't forget. That they would remember who God is and what, what he had done for them. The most significant of them being the Passover. And it's interesting that he's, uh, that God clearly articulated for them, this is how you're to observe the Passover, so that you remember who you were and where you came from. And when Jesus came to earth, and the night before he was betrayed, he was taking the Passover. And in this Passover meal that the people of God had observed for uh, centuries, he picks up the piece of bread that they've always understood to be the body of the lamb, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is the blood, with the, the wine was to represent the, the blood of the lamb. This is my blood, which is spilt for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. There is a, an engagement, even, even in just a moment, we're going to come up here and we're going to take the table. And we're going to physically walk and we're going to physically gauge, we're going to get the broken bread and we're going to taste it and we're going to eat it and we're going we're to engage in the retelling of the story. Even on, on Sundays, and I don't know, I know I've met, I mentioned this before and I've said it before, but just to make you aware of it, Every Sunday, the arc of our worship service is shaped around the story of the gospel. The call to worship. Just as God spoke light into darkness, he speaks light into our, bark, uh, our, 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 our darkened hearts. And so we remember, we reimagine, we, we, we re-understand God speaking and initiating his word into our life, and we respond to that. So there's the call to worship. We, we come in confession because once we acknowledge that God is as great and as awesome as he really is, we can't do anything else but say what Isaiah said, and woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a, a, a people of unclean lips. And so we have to respond in confession, in humility to God. But then he grants us and he assures us, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Now go and live this way. And so then we follow, we go from the fall, or we go from creation to the fall to the redemption that is proclaimed to us through the assurance of our forgiveness and then the restoration. How are we to live now that this is true? And so we hear the preaching of the word of God. So every Sunday we feel the arc of the story of the gospel. And then we come up here and we engage in it in the story of the gospel as we remember the broken body and the spilt blood. The very, uh, um, Robert Weber goes on to say, the very nature of the church is defined by the saving deeds of God in Christ. The church, as an extension of Jesus in the world, is called to be an incarnational embodiment of Jesus' way of being. It is not just another institution in the world, although it allows itself to, degener to degenerate into that on occasion, but it is a sign of the historic redemption of the coming kingdom. The church witnesses to God's saving deeds, not only by its very existence in the world, but also by its worship, which animates its life. We can become 
There's, there's two sides of this. We can say that all the practices and the rituals and the traditions of the church that many different churches practice, that just gets too traditional. It's all a bunch of ritualism. It's not true belief. Or we can go to the, uh, the opposite side and say true belief is only experienced in these traditions and in these, in these ways. The reality is, is that uh, we, God made us physical human beings to engage and to understand. I'm drinking water right here, right? <laughs> I'm a physical human being. I, I need water. We look around and we sense things. We crave things. We desire things. And so the world that we live in was designed for us to enjoy and to immerse ourselves in. And we understand, like I said before, we understand our lives and through the narratives that we believe. But because it's so easy to forget who we are and what we are all about, we need to enter into the big story. Now, how do we choose which stories are important? Well, I will just say this. The historic church has practiced the calendar for many, many centuries. And so they, as, as they have developed what the church calendar is and how they go about it, they have chosen to specifically connect with and engage with those times where God has interacted with us. Think of it. The longing of the advent hoping and longing for the world that is broken to one day have its, salva- have its Savior come, its Rescuer come. And so Jesus come as he puts on flesh. God takes on human flesh and comes into our world and lives. And so we celebrate the joy of that particular moment. We celebrate the joy of the incarnation when God who was separated from us from the beginning of time when man sinned, when God took on human flesh and once again entered into our world. We celebrate his life and how he lived out everything the way that we failed to live. He did everything perfectly. And over and over and over was identified as the promised one, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior. And he declared that of himself and he was declared that by God, and he identified the connection that he had with the Old Testament prophets. And then he goes and he, he's crucified. He's betrayed and he's crucified. All these things prophesied. So he dies on the cross. He rises again from the dead. And, you, and again, you might say, I know this, but we need to enter into that so that we feel it, so that we understand it. And there are ways that we do it our own way. <laughs> It's not always bad. There are times, just, I mean, you think about it. There's Christmas tree. There's a Christmas tree in my house right now. And there's even a, there were presents under the tree yesterday. My mother-in-law already sent presents. And you're wondering, what's inside there? I don't know. I can't wait for whatever's inside there to be revealed. For it to be here. And then when I know, when I open that, there's going to be great joy. We find ways of anticipation of being able to, 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 to experience life in a way that helps us to reimagine what it was like to wait for the coming Messiah. I love the way that C.S. Lewis does it in The Wine, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He creates, I mean, they, they enter into Narnia where there's just cold. It's always winter, but never Christmas. It's been this way for 100, 100 years. But then, as the prophecies become start being fulfilled, and there's word that Aslan is on the move, he's coming, everything starts to melt away and spring comes. Father Christmas even arrives. 
and brings gifts. It's a way of being able to reimagine and understand that the story of redemption that we live inside of is the most compelling and the most amazing story that we understand. So the church calendar engages our senses and not just our minds, but every part of us. The church calendar helps us to stimulate our imagination. It helps arouse our affections. And so as we enter into this, I I just want to encourage us, as we enter into this new season, the way that we plan out our services, the way that we follow the the year, the, the church calendar, all of these things are things that are intended for you, for your love to grow deeper toward God, deeper toward one another, for your affections to be uh, engaged with who He is and what we have called to be, be call, we are what we are called to be through Christ. I'm not going to go through and tell you all the things about Advent and why Advent is why it is what it is and Christmas. I've already alluded to so much of that. But as we go into and start next week, and as we go through the four uh, the four weeks of Advent, we're going to have candles up here. We'll light candles. We'll do a particular liturgy that we never do throughout the year, but we do it during Advent because as we light each candle, the glow of the light gets brighter and brighter just as the light of Christ came into the world. So it's our way of reimagining through this tradition and this ritual the coming of the light of Christ into our world. And we'll celebrate on a dark night here, Christmas Eve, as we prepare for the light to come on Christmas Day the coming of Christ. Engage in these things. Lean into them. The where we will go wrong is where we get all caught up in these traditions and these rituals and we forget about Jesus. That's where we go wrong. And that's why we have to do what we do in worship through the context of the gathered body of Christ. Through his ordained people so that our hearts and our minds can continue to be stirred toward Jesus. Our hearts are affected by Jesus. Now, did we uh, put the liturgy in the slides by chance that I had given? No? Okay. I had sent a, I had sent a, a, a liturgy uh, that I was going to have us respond to, but uh, I'm going to read it for us. Um, there's a, there's a, a man who has written liturgies for every day, uh, every part of our life, the days of our lives that we uh, things that are ordinary things in our lives. And I wanted to conclude with this. So I'm going to read it for us. This particular liturgy is called a liturgy to mark the start of the Christmas season. And so I want to read this for us together. And I want this to serve as the beginning of our church as we enter into this new season. So listen as I read. As we prepare our houses for the coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. You came once for your people, O Lord, and you will come for us again. Though there was no room in the inn to receive you on your first arrival, we, pre- we would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. As we decorate and celebrate We do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments 
and Christmas trees, our festive carols and sumptuous feasts. By these small tokens, we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space. That God, on a particular night, in a particular place, so many years ago, was born to us an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and rhythms and uh, ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat the sounding joy first proclaimed by the angels on the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebrate in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree, and as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing the coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with opened arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen. God, I pray that you would help us, help your church, as we enter into this story, as we are reminded of your word, reminded of the truth of the gospel. Help us to help our affections to be stirred, for our loves to be stoked towards you. And help us to be changed more and more into the way that you desire us to be, that we would be, con- that we'd be recreated into the image of Christ through the rhythms, through the rituals, and through the truths of this year. God, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.